0: Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack. Founder and CEO at Vandenak Weaver Trollson, and I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held businesses, tax, trusts, estates, related topics, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal.
0: And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of Interactive Legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. You don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time convenient for you. So please go to InteractiveLegal.com and click on Request and Demo. Wealth Planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWMLLC an SEC Registered Investment Advisor.
1: On today's episode, my guest is Ross Poking. Ross is Senior Lead Advisor and Business Development with Foster Group. Ross has significant experience in wealth management. Ross did a previous episode with me where he shared sports analogies related to financial planning. I asked Ross to join us again and talk about fiduciary issues in financial planning. Welcome back, Ross.
2: Thanks, Mary. I'll have to admit I was probably a little more excited about the sports analogy pod than, than the fiduciary one, but there's probably no more important topic in our industry than this anyway. So.
1: Well, I think if you can take any of those sports analogies and build them into this conversation. I might have one or two I'll
2: throw out. I yeah, say that, bet. I think
1: that'd be more than welcome. Cause that's actually one of the things I love, you know, I follow you on mm-hmm. social media and wherever I see you. And, and honestly, and I think I've said this to you is that Part of how I remember some of the concepts are, yeah, you know, I'm a lifetime sports mm-hmm. fan. And when you take that and apply
2: it to sports, it just helps me. So sure. feel free. Yep. But can
1: you start by explaining the concept of fiduciary?
2: Yeah, not to overcomplicate it, but, you know, the idea of a fiduciary, which sometimes we laugh in our industry, is known as the F word. Um, but it's a good <laughs> F word um, if, if taken in the right light. Uh, fiduciary is simply someone who is acting in another's best interests. So it's putting aside any personal incentives um, and helping advise or coach or lead somebody to do what is ever best in their own personal situation.
1: So is there such a thing as a fiduciary financial advisor? And if yes, what does that mean?
2: Yeah, this one is, try not to get too deep in the weeds here, but in our industry, in the financial advisory industry, of which, you know, in our country today, there's anywhere between two to 300,000 Investment advisors, financial advisors, that alone is a different topic, right? What do those two terms even mean? But a fiduciary, specifically, there are fiduciary advisors out there. Um, It's a clear line in the sand, um, and it really gets back to how that particular business or individual is structured. So um, get technical, historical here for a minute. There's an Investment Advisors Act of 1940, specifically, that outlines how an investment advisor so structured should act as a fiduciary and if an individual is registered as such as they're registered as an investment advisor with the securities and exchange commission then they are beholden to act on a client's best interest so um why would a person not be a fiduciary right so yes there are fiduciary investment advisors but the lion's share of advisors out there are not fiduciaries it doesn't mean they're in the business to help people make poor decisions It simply means their business structure is one that now all of a sudden potentially allows for some conflicts of interest. They're not held to a fiduciary standard. They're held to what's known as a suitability standard. Their recommendations simply have to be suitable for their client, not necessarily the best. So in those situations, you can imagine that's where conflicts of interest can arise and how people maybe are paid or how they're incentivized and ultimately the advice that they're lending.
1: And the required disclosures and those Different situations are fairly significant. There's been a lot of regulatory developments in recent years, a lot of discussions, things called the best interest rule. That yep. was, and there's been various regulatory bodies because you have different regulatory bodies. That's correct. And then there's state law level rules as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, when you're figuring out who's the best advisor, mm-hmm. there's a huge difference between somebody who's acting in your best interest and somebody who says this investment. Is simply suitable and as you pointed out it doesn't mean that they're not doing the right thing by you but you do need to be aware of that standard that's exactly right yeah and so can we elaborate just a little more on why why a client cares and what they can ask to find out where that advisor falls
2: sure uh, well first of all why would you want uh, an advisor who is a fiduciary and, and you pointed out some of the regulation in the past few years it's funny that regulation was meant to crystallize What's a fiduciary and non-fiduciary? I, I think it's actually grayed and muddied the waters. Um, it's allowed advisors to actually wear both hats, a fiduciary and a non-fiduciary in the same meeting with a client. So I think, if anything, it's become more confusing than, than less uh, for clients, um, even though that wasn't the original intent. Uh, but when, a, when, a, when an individual, when an investor looks to hire an advisor, one of the ways that they can first identify if, a, if an advisor is a fiduciary is by asking them. Just ask, right? Don't rely on, you know, what is purported on their website or what they hear from others. You need to ask, are you a fiduciary? Are you a pure fiduciary? That's actually an adjective that's been added a lot of times to the questions we get is, are you a pure fiduciary, not a hybrid or not a so-so? Are you a pure fiduciary? Um, that should be a yes or no answer. Um, couple of other uh, steps to take in looking for specific fiduciaries if people actually are, because every advisor out there, heck, you and I, you know, um, or take your doctor or the garbage man, you can ask anybody if they're a fiduciary, right? And they can say yes, because they're looking out for the best interests of whoever their customers are. But the question is, are they legally bound? Are they actually held by law to help their clients make the very best decisions possible? Uh, so, again, how the business is structured, do they actually fall under that Investment Advisors Act of 1940? Are they considered a registered investment advisor with the SEC or the state? Are they CFP certified? Uh, CFP, you know, cert, um, certified financial planner, so that's a designation that advisors will get in the industry, and they have to adhere to fiduciary standards if they're actually going to use those marks in their particular practice. Um, Are they fee only? Where's their revenue coming from? You can see there's a laundry list of things to check on. Um, Another one that um, has entered the industry in the last 15 to 20 years is uh, what's known as Centers for Fiduciary Excellence. So I don't know if um, you're familiar. It's a fairly uncommon um, entity, but it's a third-party organization out there that actually uh, is hired by advisory firms, brought in. Think of the SEC doing audits or the IRS doing audits. Um, centers for fiduciary excellence will send in folks to an organization they'll audit not their books but they'll audit the firm's processes right are they actually acting as a fiduciary for their clients as opposed to the advisor just saying they are and they will dole out an actual designation to that advisor if they pass the muster if they pass that test specifically and how they purportedly are acting as a fiduciary so there are a number of marks out there in order to check if someone is legally bound as a fiduciary.
1: So is there a website that people can go check to find out if they have that particular certification?
2: Yeah, you can actually go to the Centers for Fiduciary Excellence website. So CFEX is the is the acronym that they go under, C-E-F-E-X. Um, myself, a number of our advisors, others in the industry, you'll find they'll have like similar to uh, – a. Um, You know, any designation or letters behind a person's name, they'll have the designation of AIF, so accredited investment fiduciary. Um, Those are stipulations then that really behold uh, folks to operate as such. You know, another thing I didn't mention either, which all advisory firms will have on file, it's a public document, it's the form ADV. So this is a form, it's, it's certainly bedtime reading if you're having a hard time falling asleep, but... Um, It's a pretty significant document that's broken into various parts. And within that, we'll outline specifically the advisory firm's roles and responsibilities and how they serve clients. And within that, we'll clearly outline whether or not that firm is beholden to those fiduciary responsibilities we talk about.
1: And as you noted, I happen to agree that I think some of the rules and regulations that we've had promulgated in recent years have actually muddied the waters. Mm I actually were asked to write for one of the publications that I write for on various aspects of the regulations and just doing that one of the regulatory documents and I was supposed to write on it within 48 hours but it was hundreds of pages Mm. so there's no way I can get through 100 pages of regulations so just understanding them is really complicated and one thing that you mentioned is all the different designations and Mm. so there's the investment advisor the financial advisor there's different there's different licenses you can get there's life insurance which is a little bit different mm-hmm. category and have different rules so and there's some advisors that do all of the above right mm-hmm. so what would be would it be what was the acronym that you just gave for AIF
2: or C F P?
1: Yeah, the, well, yeah. What would what would let me just ask that? Yeah. What would be the most important designation somebody should look for? Because you can look behind a particular <clears throat> advisor's name and they might have four, five, six sure. sets of letters. Sure. Which one do I yep. care about?
2: Yeah. Um if you want to know for absolutely certain that an individual is a fiduciary, uh, the AIF actually would be the first one you'd look for. You wouldn't find it much. It's not um it's not as rampant as the CFP, and the CFP actually isn't that rampant because it's, um, it's a pretty high hurdle in regards to education, continuing education, and, and just the overall knowledge base of financial planning acumen. But if you have the CFP marks and you put those behind your name, CFP requires, Certified Financial Planning um, Association requires that you act, regardless of where you work and who you work for, um, they require that you act as a fiduciary when doling out advice to clients.
1: So somebody might have 10 sets of letters behind their name, whereas somebody else might only have one set, and that's a CFP. The CFP is potentially a pretty good candidate. Mm -hmm. So don't judge by the number of letters behind the name. Judge by what those letters are. Yeah,
2: that's, you know, it certainly shows some effort, obviously, in regards to how they want to better their career and build their um, expertise in whatever they're doing. But no, it's not necessarily correlated to fiduciary and super smart and, you know, will somebody take care of me ultimately?
1: And regardless of all of that, it's kind of the questions that you've identified a couple times and may come back to today in terms of these are the questions that you ask. Well, let's talk a minute about one of the things I run into a lot with in what I do, which is the conflict of interest mm-hmm. type of situation. What is a conflict of interest in the financial planning arena? And if you have somebody acting in the fiduciary capacity, how does that get resolved?
2: yeah a conflict of interest again just simply put is is something that would incentivize an advisor to do something that may not necessarily be in the client's best interest so let's let's use a simple example um an advisor sits down with a client for the first time um and they go through x y and z in regards to their information and and accounts etc and at the conclusion of that meeting they say well you really need to buy this policy, you need to buy this insurance policy, this million-dollar, you know, whole-life insurance policy, um, knowing that the sale of that policy will also provide a commission to that particular advisor, okay? Now, it doesn't mean that policy is incorrect. It may very well be suitable. They may have a risk mitigation need on income replacement should that person pass. The question becomes one of, well, A, is that really necessary, and B, is that the right chassis, is that the right vehicle to deliver that income protection or is there something better, less expensive, uh, more prudent for that individual at that particular time. So again, you can see how quickly the waters can be muddied um, and one can argue versus another whether it's prudent or suitable or not. Um, The question in the end is, was that best for that client or was there a part of that recommendation that benefited the person offering up the advice?
1: So, Ross, if I'm a client of yours Mm -hmm. and you're the one talking to me about those, how can I evaluate whether or not you're really putting me first and offering me what's the very best option for me?
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, how most people operate in the fiduciary space today, so pure fiduciaries, right, registered investment advisors, for the most part, those folks, um, they don't sell anything, right? They, They don't have, quote, an insurance arm. Uh, They don't prepare tax returns. They don't draft up estate documents. They don't sell or promote, um, you know, commission-based investment products or funds. Uh, They remove those things on the front end so that when you enter into that relationship or engagement, really all those boxes are checked. Well, I don't have to worry, you know, even if Ross recommends this policy to me, well, he's not going to sell it to me. And he's not going to get a dime from the agent who's going to sell it to me either. But he may introduce me to the person who's going to help implement that solution. But Ross has no incentive to do that other than what's in my best interest. So it's really understanding how are all the dots connected behind the scenes even before advice is laid out that could potentially get in the way of of you making the very best decision.
1: So the situation that I think is difficult for people to really distinguish is that I can come to you, Ross, and you can actually help me get life insurance, help me identify my life insurance needs. You can help me figure out the best allocation for me. You can look at whether I need disability insurance and all those factors, but you're not necessarily going to be the person who sells them all to me. That's correct. But how do I really know? How do I really understand that? Do you make a point of it? Because there's the other advisors that actually, oh, I do insurance. I Mm -hmm, do investments. mm -hmm. I do all of the above. You kind of do all of the above too, but you're just not the one selling them. And I think that's a huge distinguishing factor that I'm not sure that consumers always know how to, I don't even know that professionals always know how to identify.
2: No, I agree. Yeah. And a lot of times you'll see brows raised when folks come and sit, whether it's a, you know, a professional associate um, locally that we're networking with or a prospective client who comes in. And when you share that story with them, you'll see a brow raised a lot of times. Oh, really? You don't do that? Um, Because one of the easy questions is, well, why wouldn't you? If you've got a client who needs insurance, why wouldn't you sell it to them? Don't they trust you? Right? Can't you generate revenue from that? Yes and yes, but we just feel like that over time may potentially erode credibility and trust. And so we would prefer to build, use our time and our efforts to build relationships with folks. Again, Mary, I'll use you, for example, right? In the estate planning world. We know a lot about estate planning, right? Enough to identify when something needs to be done or we need to get folks introduced. You're the expert. You're the one who lives in this world. You're the one who can deliver a solution and implement a solution. So we'd rather Tie into those folks, right, who can bring that expertise to the table rather than dilute what we think we do really, really well, and that's financial planning and investment management.
1: We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors.
0: If you had a dollar for every financial advisor that just wanted your money, your financial future would already be secure. At Foster Group, our team is different one whose focus is on you and your dreams. Together, we'll create a strategy that helps you get there, wherever there is for you. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com.
1: Okay, let's continue our episode. So should clients enter into written agreements with their financial advisors and what would those look like?
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you've got to have a written agreement down because otherwise, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of um, legalities and lawsuits uh, in our world today. Fortunately, foster group in 30 plus years, we've never been sued, but uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't folks out there who do bring suits against others. And so having um, very concise, clear agreements on the front end that outline what our fiduciary roles and responsibilities are, what we will do and what we won't do, right? Um, helping people understand on the front end and making sure that's in writing and signed. Um, it's also, you know, we'll go back to the Form ADV. We need to make sure people have that information on the front end. You're, 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 by law, you're actually required to deliver that document as thick and heavy and boring as it is. You're required to deliver that document um, to a prospective and or onboarding client right away in the relationship, right? So they have all that information on the front end. Um, if if those pieces, both the engagement agreement that articulates roles and responsibilities, the form ADV, um, including acknowledgement of how people are being paid, if those things aren't delivered on the front end, it's best to just hit pause and, and ask why.
1: A lot of times clients will bring their agreements with financial advisors to me. So I'm <laughs> hearing that one thing, that an advisor would be looking at if they're reviewing that agreement is the fiduciary versus non-fiduciary. So it says, if I'm not a fidu, I am not a fiduciary, then we want to have that discussion. Correct. Is there anything else that I would really want to be looking for?
2: You as the an client?
1: attorney for the client in this case.
2: Yeah, the um, there's also a, a, I guess we'll call it a line in the sand as well as how investment decisions are made. Uh, One of the confusing components of uh, a lot of advisory relationships is who ultimately is making the decision on the investments. Uh, A lot of people work with, um, we'll call them registered representatives, so with a broker-dealer, whereas that broker-dealer, they don't have discretion on how investment decisions are made. They, for the most part, need to contact the client every time trades are placed and or decisions are made inside the portfolio. They'll execute on them, but because they do not have that discretion as a fiduciary, they need to contact the client. Firms in the advisor, the registered investment advisory space, tend to have discretion over investment accounts, and so it's making sure both that there's acknowledgement on the front end of who's making decisions, um, and also agreement as well. Um, some folks um, either really, really appreciate that that you know the firm that they're engaging is going to make those decisions and not hamper, you know, or be calling every day asking if they can do this, that, or whatever. That's why they hired them. Um, And others don't like that. Others don't like that idea of just giving up control. So it's one of those things that, you know, even you as the attorney, it's making sure that, you know, everybody understands. That's why we read through those things with clients Um, as as tedious as it may be. We want to make sure that they understand, um, you know, things down to a level of investment decisions, how those things are made.
1: And the trend I've seen recently is more full discretion given to advisors. But to the extent that somebody doesn't want to provide full discretion or makes wants to make sure that they're being consulted on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and you can tell me what else you see, but sometimes we'll do something like have, you know, they agree to at least a monthly phone call to discuss overall strategy or something like that. And we include that in the agreement just so that we don't have that full discretion signed off. And then all of a sudden there's things happening in their portfolio and they're like hey i would have never done that yeah
2: yep for sure and you know um i think it's important that we and everybody in our um, industry acknowledge that we never forget whose money this is right so um by articulating or implementing investment solutions on the front and on an ongoing basis from a discretionary standpoint um it would be different if um Let's just take, again, for example, an advisory outlet that is um, timing the market, buying and selling each and every day, right? Something in, something out, just constant movement. Uh, that would bring about plenty of red flags or at least needs to check in. It's like, why today and not tomorrow, right? Whereas the approach that folks you know, at Foster Group, and our, our team, and, and others will rely upon is more of an academic approach. It's a buy and hold approach. It's what does the portfolio need to do over the next 10 to 20 years and let's implement that solution today. And then we'll rebalance as we go along. You know, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and see individual shares of Netflix. And then the next day that's sold and buying, you know, individual shares of Amazon. It's like, you know, we just like watching a tennis match and pretty soon your neck is, is cranking, right? That's, that's not the idea. So, um, but great point. And uh, you're, you're spot on in regards to just making sure that everybody understands ultimately what is the expectation on how the money is managed.
1: And that kind of leads me to the next question, which is the sophistication of different investors. And you and I have worked together over the years on retirement plans and seen a lot of interesting things. And I think it was actually, I don't know though that you were part of the conversation, but we were representing a physician group. And this was when the big trend was to take retirement plans and make them self-directed. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that trend. I remember visiting a particular professional group and talking about the self-direction, and one of the nurses says, look, I'm a nurse, I'm really good at doing X, mm. Y, and Z, but I know nothing about, and so I really want some help with that. So that would be somebody who might be really bright and really capable, but is not necessarily sophisticated financially. Then I was at a meeting earlier today with a guy who I'm going, and we're reviewing financial statements, which I think I'm kind of good at, but I was listening to him going, wow, I still have a few things to learn in that category. You run into that same differences and levels of sophistication in terms of the clients you deal with. Does what you do change based on that?
2: Uh, it, it's a good question. In it, the first answer would be no. Uh, just in regards to everybody, you know, when we sit in a fiduciary seat, our role and responsibility is to help somebody make the very best decisions in the end. So whether it's somebody who is sophisticated or not, right, that's an arbitrary term. What does it really mean? It's all relative. Uh, In the end, people need to make decisions that are specific or decisions that are specific to their situation, um, but not miss the mark. You know, sometimes dangerous isn't the right word, but you have to be wary when you're working with folks who are relatively sophisticated and understand, or at least think they know and understand. Hopefully this doesn't um, upset any doctors, most of them will laugh at my next comment, but you know we work with a lot of physicians. you just indicated uh, physicians a minute ago. physicians are incredibly smart people they 're really sophisticated sometimes they get in trouble by thinking they know more than they do in regards to just their personal financial planning um, and when they get into areas that maybe aren 't best suited they they were they went through school to be medical professionals right they didn 't get an hour's worth of time on business management or or investing specifically unless they sought it out themselves so um, just being wary and cautious of not relying upon the person's sophistication but making sure we're providing the same level of education and conversation um, so that they know exactly you know some of the presumptions that people have aren't necessarily true but they're so baked in over the course of time that we just have to unravel those
1: and i would say kind of the example and i use that intentionally because that's a market that you and i have both been mm-hmm. in over the years in an area that i think is successful but when you talked about the specifics and there's a specific market some advisors are really good in certain areas i'd say the foster group is or foster group has grown a lot since i've known you and i think you cover all areas Correct. that's just yeah. one that is happens to be one area that i mm-hmm. was familiar with you did a lot of 401k type work and i've always had a lot of appreciation for, you know, you help the nurse, you help the physician, sure. and sometimes you're working with somebody who is pretty sophisticated, but still have good counsel to offer them. Yeah,
2: everybody needs help. Um, and there's no, you know, there shouldn't be a, a certain threshold or hurdle that it takes to um, cross over before you need an advisor or need help, right? Everybody's situation is, is it's all relative. And so, the wealth that's accumulated, whether, again, it's, you know, someone sitting in that nurse seat or a, a specialty physician or a, a business owner, um, it doesn't matter. They all have specific needs and, um, and advice that uh, that can certainly better their situation.
1: And we've talked about the fact that not every advisor is a fiduciary. So that's something that you should ask. But let's say you find an advisor that is a fiduciary we've talked a little bit about the advantages of of that. I assume it's not going to guarantee that you're going to make a profit. So if we said, what is the most significant advantage? Can you just reiterate that? You've kind of covered that throughout. But if you were to summarize, what's the key advantage of having somebody that is a fiduciary?
2: Yeah. um, Yeah, certainly no. If if a, quote, fiduciary ever guarantees you a profit, that's probably A, not a fiduciary, nor someone you should work with. Uh, Typically, you know, any guarantees will simply come with the sale of a, of a product of some sort. Um, So certainly something not to, not to um, lay on top of a a fiduciary, but uh, um, primary reasons, um, purpose incentives uh, benefit of, of hiring a fiduciary again is I'll go back to a comment I made earlier. I, you know, trust is, is um, is difficult sometimes to come by in this industry because of some of the poor decisions and or actions taken by those who came before us i i oftentimes uh will share or will laugh about the um there's an annual trust study of all industries that exist out there service industries okay and um i've looked at it from time to time and typically uh, financial advisors on the trust totem pole um fall just under used car salesmen but right above u.s congressmen. right so that's not an enviable spot to be in okay where are lawyers in that uh they're much higher than, than financial advisors. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're an easy one to trust. Uh, but you know, just acknowledging that we fall in that industry, even though we are not a broker dealer, we're not a registered representative. We operate in the fiduciary space. We, you know, from the get go, we'll say this is apples to oranges. This is, that is not the industry a we're, it's just different. But we acknowledge the fact that, um, you know, the layperson will look at us no different than any other advisory outlet out there. So, um, knowing that initially the first thing people want is trust and no better way to at least start to, you know, take down the walls of mistrust is by being a fiduciary, right? And having legal standing of doing that, knowing that the advice that comes their way will not be off the cuff advice. There's no incentive that will come back to us, uh, in regards to the advice again, that we provide the investments that are put inside someone's portfolio. There's not a dime that will come back to us, um, We oftentimes share an example on the front end, again, really articulate uh, how a fiduciary should operate. If there's investment A and investment B, right? And both invest in the same thing. Take a mutual fund, right? A mutual fund that uh, captures the return of the S&P 500. Both A, you know, fund A and B, they both do the same thing. But fund B happens to have a sales load on it for whatever reason. That fund company is providing a sales load that ultimately goes back to the advisor by putting it in somebody's portfolio. Well, as a fiduciary, I'm not going to suggest fund B, right? I mean, that doesn't, that's not best for the client. The best fund for the client is the same exposure to the market, but doesn't cost them anything, or at least doesn't have that uh, kickback to the advisor. That that same label can't be applied necessarily to a non-fiduciary, right? That fund B would still be suitable for the client, but it wouldn't be best, but they wouldn't be wrong either by suggesting that fund. So, um, it, it it again it gets back to trust and really ultimately who's who's winning in the end
1: so I first learned about those differences in the way the kickbacks and things worked when I was on an airplane flying somewhere and the guy sitting next to me happened to be a guy who handled the all the investments for retirement plans of the nice. financial institution I got such an education on that plane flight Was well, there anything else that you want to add today Ross
2: uh you know there. Just full disclosure, there's a lot of really good people in our industry, uh, whether they're, quote, fiduciaries or not. You know, most people have good intentions of helping others out, and everybody does need advice in some form or another, uh, regardless of how well they think they have their situation handled. Um, That can come in varying forms. But in the end, um, knowing how to equip yourself when you go into those engagements or sit down for the first time with somebody and just being able to get the answers, get the feedback and build that level of trust is, is super important. So, you know, for any prospective folks out there who are looking for an advisor, you just need to take their time. Don't rush into anything. Even if a situation seems dire and immediate, um, you know, you want an advisory relationship to be long-term, not, you know, six months, six months, six months. Uh, and so doing your homework on the front end is, is really, really important.
1: And one of the places to look is like there's us we've been around for a while we've developed relationships with trusted advisors so we kind of know so one of the things you can do is if you have a trusted advisor in your realm in another area maybe a place awesome. to look as yep. opposed to just googling. Totally. Yep. So as we reach the end of our episode I want to thank our sponsors Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Yeah.
0: about any legal needs or questions you may have.
2: Ahura Media Production.